Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Wednesday, November 18th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. 77,000 people across the United States now hospitalized with COVID-19 as the pandemic continues to grow in size and severity. While a major pharmaceutical company releases new findings about its vaccine, hoping to seek FDA emergency approval in just a matter of days. President Trump still refusing to concede to Joe Biden, while a number of court cases filed on behalf of the Trump campaign continue to be dismissed in key states. The president now seemingly taking revenge on a top election security official who vouched for the security of the 2020 election. And the aftermath of a massive and deadly Category 4 storm, millions of residents across Central America taking stock and surveying the havoc caused by Hurricane Iota. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin with the latest on the pandemic. More than 77,000 people hospitalized across the country as cases rise in more than 40 states. Governors announcing tighter restrictions as Dr. Anthony Fauci urges Americans to cancel their holiday plans. Lorraine Caceres has the latest. As cases of coronavirus soar across the country, more promising news on the search for a vaccine. Pfizer revealing that after further data analysis, its vaccine is 95% effective, not 90 as previously reported. The news coming after Moderna revealed Monday its vaccine is 94.5% effective. It's one of the greatest moments of my life and my career. It is uh, absolutely amazing to me to be able to uh, develop this vaccine and see the ability to prevent symptomatic disease with such high efficacy. More than one million cases of coronavirus have been reported in just the last seven days. That's about 100 Americans diagnosed every minute. Among the hardest hit, South Dakota, where the governor has consistently resisted public health measures. The seven-day average positivity rate there stands at almost 60%. Even after positive results come back, some people just don't believe it. In North Dakota and West Virginia, mask mandate is now in effect. And I strongly urge, strongly urge us all to wear masks. That's all we got to go on right now. Iowa and Montana also announcing statewide mask mandates. And in Montana, the governor restricting capacity at businesses to 50%. We need to turn things around over the next few months while we wait on a widely distributed vaccine. Or else we risk hospitals to turn patients away. In Utah, ICUs are nearing capacity. Frontline workers from New York, once the epicenter of the virus, are now headed there to help. I think us coming in has really shown the Intermountain nurses, you know, we are here to support you. We have your back just like you had ours. In the East Coast, cases in Philadelphia have increased 700% in the last two months. Starting Friday, indoor dining will be banned and gyms and museums will be closed and youth sports canceled. It means no indoor parties, group meals, football watching groups, no visiting between households, no indoor weddings, funerals, baby showers. Out west in California, the governor is now warning a curfew is possible, reimposing restrictions in 40 counties, cases there doubling in the past 10 days. This is simply the fastest increase California has seen since the beginning of this pandemic. Meanwhile, Dr. Anthony Fauci telling the New York Times the U.S. needs a more unified approach to slow the spread of the virus. 
We need some fundamental public health measures that everyone should be adhering to, not a disjointed one state says one thing, the other state says another thing. Fauci urging Americans to forego their normal holiday plans as testing sites across the country are overwhelmed. We are also seeing a lot of people that are just getting tested because they want to have license to go socialize with each other. And unfortunately, that is not the phase of the pandemic that we are in right now. Now, Pfizer is preparing to submit its vaccine for emergency use authorization, which can take between two and four weeks and then wide distribution in a few months. With a vaccine in the near future, it is very likely that this current surge of cases is the last one we'll see. And this, according to a former FDA commissioner, Dr. Mark McClellan. And now moving on, as Lorraine mentioned in her story, distribution of this new vaccine could take months and bring about its own logistical challenges. So what's more, our next guest says most states aren't prepared, specifically in those rural areas. Joining us now is Isaac Arnstorf. He's a reporter at ProPublica and his most recent story titled Most States Aren't Ready to Distribute the Leading COVID-19. 19 vaccine explores why and he joins us now to discuss this. Welcome Isaac. Thank you so much for joining us. So what are the particular challenges of distributing the Pfizer vaccine? Well, it's important to look at now having both Pfizer and Moderna as likely options, which is a, a big sigh of relief for a lot of states. And the reason is that the Pfizer vaccine in particular is very difficult for them to handle because it needs to be kept at very low temperatures, uh, 100 degrees below zero Celsius. Um, and also that it's only going to come in these huge boxes of a, at least a thousand doses each. And a Moderna, by contrast, uh, is going to come in minimum shipment sizes of 100 and does need to be kept very cold, not as cold. Um, and significantly, Moderna announced, in, in addition to their efficacy results, that they also realized that their vaccine would be stable for 30 days in the regular fridge. So that's a huge advantage uh, and puts a lot of pressure on, on Pfizer to, to deal with some of those constraints because uh, otherwise it makes the Moderna vaccine a much more appealing option, especially in more remote places. Um, it, you know, if you think about the difference between having to go through a thousand doses in only five days with the Pfizer vaccine versus having 30 days to go through a hundred doses with the Moderna vaccine. So that really, you know, it, it's a constantly changing uh, situation as, as states are getting new information and they're trying to plan for these different scenarios of uh, having two possible vaccines coming out at the same time, but in limited quantities at the beginning. Now it's up to states to come up with a distribution strategy, but should that responsibility be on the federal government? Well, the way it's going to work is it's a combination. So this is actually modeled on the way that they distribute the seasonal flu vaccine every year. So the federal government basically delivers it to the states and then the states take it from there. And uh, part of the problem with that is funding. So states have only gotten a total of $200 million to do this when the CDC director estimates that it's probably really going to cost closer to $6 billion. And uh, in particular, with the 1,000-dose the, the shipments that Pfizer is sending out, the federal government is only going to move those once. So if the state determines that it needs to break those down into smaller quantities to send out to more far-flung areas, then the state has to do that on its own. 
Healthcare workers and other frontline workers will have priority for early vaccine doses. How are states or counties defining who gets a vaccine first? It's interesting. So it depends uh, state to state. And it, I mean, fundamentally, those are going to be decisions that are going to be happening at an even more local level, like in the actual hospital uh, or, or nursing home. Um, some states are prioritizing uh, people in prisons and jails where there have been very bad out outbreaks, and some states are scheduling them for later down the line. Um, some states like Arkansas, which has a very big chicken industry, considers uh, workers in those factories to be essential workers. So there are a lot of local factors that are affecting uh, how people at, at the state and local level are deciding who to prioritize. Now, it's my understanding that the vaccine will be given in two doses. Now, let's just say, and I know this is theoretical, that a patient or several patients go get the vaccine that first dose. If they experience any side effects, how easy will it be to convince them to go ahead and get that second dose that is absolutely necessary? Well, so any, any kind of reactions are going to need to be reported, and the states all have uh, systems to track that and the system. This is another thing that we don't totally know how it's going to work is are those databases that the states are using going to talk to the database that the federal government is using to monitor? Um, and are there going to be, uh, is there going to be duplicative information? Um, and is there going to be a problem with the data quality? Uh, so there, when in some of these states reports, they were grappling with how all of that's going to work. Um, but the, but to answer your question, the, the vaccine is, is only being tested for having both of those doses. So uh, without the second dose, it's not gonna work. And that's another concern, um, particularly in states that have um, seasonal or migrant uh, workers, such as Oregon and North Dakota both mentioned this. They're not sure what's gonna happen if there are people who aren't in the state anymore after a few weeks when they need to get their second dose and the state doesn't know how to keep track of them. It'll be interesting to see how all this plays out, but hopefully we can see results as a matter of this and soon perhaps see the light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you so much, ProPublica reporter Isaac Arnstorf. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks. And the FDA has authorized the first at-home rapid COVID-19 test. The Lucera COVID-19 all-in-one test kit is available by prescription for self-diagnosis. It uses molecular amplification technology, which searches for signs of the virus's genetic material. The kit includes a sterile swab, a sample vial, a test unit, batteries, and a plastic disposal bag. The FDA also authorized a test for use in doctors' offices, hospitals, urgent care centers, and emergency rooms. President Trump making a stunning move, firing his top cybersecurity official who had publicly rejected claims of a rigged election. This unfolding as legal rulings are already starting to close out paths for Trump to hold on to the presidency. President Trump may not be seen much these days, but in the White House, he's still busy pushing ahead, challenging election results. In one of his latest moves, the president firing Chris Krebs. My confidence in the security of your vote has never been higher. The president tweeting he made the decision after the cybersecurity agency head rejected Trump's baseless claims about voter fraud last week by issuing a statement that said there was no evidence of votes being deleted or changed, adding the November 3rd election was the most secure in American history. Krebs responding to his firing tweeting, 
honored to serve. We did it right. Krebs firing drawing immediate criticism from both sides. Trump's whole behavior right now should frighten the American public. And so when you look at uh, all of the things he's doing, especially with uh, Krebs, the simple fact that he said our elections are something we could believe in and there was no fraud or abuse or any cheating, uh, the president didn't like his answer, so he got rid of him. Republican Senator Ben Sass saying Krebs did a really good job as state election officials all across the nation will tell you, and he obviously should not be fired. For now, President-elect Joe Biden is still not receiving security briefings, mostly due to a lack of official acknowledgement from the General Services Administration, as President Trump refuses to concede the election. As Trump's legal options are vanishing, some Republicans vowing to a peaceful transition of power. There's a way to deal with disputes, it's called the courts. And the courts in the various states are dealing with whatever disputes there are, whatever evidence may be provided. And we're going to have an orderly transfer from this administration to the next one. Of the 18 post-election lawsuits filed by the president's campaign so far, the courts have thrown out 14 of them. Representative Mitchell, who leaves Congress next year, also urged President Trump to begin the presidential transition. And in certain states across the country, the saga that is the 2020 presidential election continues. The Trump campaign announced today that it's seeking a partial recount in Wisconsin as Michigan and Georgia are inching closer to certifying their results, cementing a Biden win. From Washington, D.C., Edwin Pitti has the latest on Trump's post-election fight. Edwin. That's right, Andrea. President Trump is about to hit a wall with no way to exit. Like you said, the saga continues. Let's start in Wisconsin, where his campaign has requested a recount. However, it won't be statewide. It will be a limited handful of counties, and that will reduce the almost $8 million price act for that recount. Important to know that in only two counties that are included in the request are nearly 800,000 votes that were casted. But last night, Republicans changed their minds after days of refusing to certify the over 148,000 votes that gave Biden the lead over Trump in Michigan. Now, the bipartisan panel in Wayne County, that includes Detroit, reversed the course after a unanimously vote. So now they are certifying their presidential election results. The move happened just hours after two Republican canvassers made unverified claims of voting irregularities in Detroit. Democratic officials and nonpartisan experts immediately condemning the act and the panel quickly changed course. Michigan Secretary of State explained the situation. Take a listen. Two individuals on the Wayne County Board of Canvassers who have a ministerial responsibility to certify the county canvas of election results, refusing to do so on baseless claims and that were ultimately clerical errors that uh, occur in nearly every election in nearly every jurisdiction. Uh, and uh, notably, the public spoke out uh, and identified and amplified the truth, which was that these elections certified. There's no reason they shouldn't be. And ultimately, they, they changed course after public comment. 
The process moves now to the Michigan Board of State canvassers where the final results are to be finalized by November 23rd, but Trump took to Twitter to say that the great state of Michigan, with votes being far greater than the number of people who voted, cannot certify the election. The Democrats cheated big time and got caught. A Republican win, that's what the president tweeted. Meanwhile, the state of Georgia is scheduled to finish its audit of the presidential election by tonight. The handful recount of nearly 5 million vote required by a state new law didn't find any suspected problems, so they will be moving on to certify their results by their deadline on Friday. Andrea? Edwin, just a quick question for you. We also know that things did not go well on Tuesday for the Trump campaign's effort to stop certification of the Pennsylvania vote count. Can you talk to us about what happened there? That's right, Andrea. The situation in Pennsylvania is not going well for Trump's campaign. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that election officials had acted properly in their handling of the observation process. This is another step back for them, especially Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, who is in charge of the process since many attorneys left the case. Reporting live in Washington, D.C., Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Edwin, as always, for all those details from Washington, D.C. Take care. And in other election news, two candidates in one of Georgia's Senate runoff races have agreed to debate. Senator Kelly Loeffler and her Democratic challenger, Rafael Warnock, will participate in a debate on December 6. Loeffler is one of two Republican senators fighting to keep their seats. These Senate races have garnered national attention because they will decide who controls the U.S. Senate. If Republicans lose both seats, they will also lose the Senate majority. The runoff election is scheduled for January 5th. Meanwhile, in Washington, President Trump's Federal Reserve nominee, Judy Shelton, hit a stumbling block on Capitol Hill on Tuesday. Senate Republican leaders failed to line up enough votes to break a filibuster against her. The final vote was 50 to 47 against Shelton, which included some Republicans opposed to her nomination. Shelton stirred up controversy with some of the ideas she promoted in the past. That includes a return to the gold standard, which would link the value of the dollar to the price of gold. Shelton's nomination can be brought up again, but it's not exactly clear when that may happen. And also on Capitol Hill, the Democratic-led House Judiciary Committee is asking the Supreme Court to postpone oral arguments in an upcoming case on former special counsel Robert Mueller's report. In that case, the Justice Department is trying to block Congress from receiving grand jury materials that are redacted from the report focused on Russian interference in the 2016 election. Oral arguments are currently set for December 2nd. In a court filing, a House lawyer argued with Joe Biden being elected president and a new Congress beginning in early January. The redacted materials could shed light on Russian election meddling and then candidate Donald Trump's response in 2016. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. You News, your world, You News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. 
Hurricane Iota roared ashore in Nicaragua 36 hours ago, becoming the strongest storm on record to hit that country. The storm bringing winds of nearly 155 miles per hour and flooding villages still reeling from the impact of Hurricane Eta just two weeks ago. Nicaraguan Vice President Rosario Murillo said at least six people had died as they were dragged down by raging rivers. And in Honduras, President Juan Orlando Hernandez warned on Tuesday that all of his country is at risk after Iota unleashed torrential floods in the Central American country, flipping roofs onto streets and killing at least nine people across the region. Iota was drenching already saturated towns and villages as it moved inland over southern Honduras. But it's not just Central America that was walloped by the storm. Many residents of Colombia's Providencia Island were left homeless after the massive hurricane tore through the region, leaving locals in search of food. Colombian President Ivan Duque said 98% of the infrastructure in Providencia had been destroyed, adding it was the first time Colombia had been hit by a Category 5 hurricane. Authorities are now working to get emergency supplies to all those residents in need. In immigration news, a court has ruled against a well-known U.S. pharmaceutical company sued for discriminating against a DACA recipient. Grecia Lastra has more details on this case. David Rodriguez's case has become a landmark case for thousands of dreamers who have been denied jobs because of their immigration status. Rodriguez has a work permit, and yet when he went to apply for an internship at Procter & Gamble, he was denied because he was a DACA beneficiary, even though he was told he had all the academic credentials. It was a very sad moment. At the moment that I had received the status, it was very depressing that it was not a complete solution. It caused me a lot of sadness that this employer did not have the capacity to understand the benefit that we could bring to the company, creating an environment with more diversity. The Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund sued Procter & Gamble on behalf of Rodriguez for discrimination. The company attempted to stop the lawsuit. But a federal judge in Florida just told Rodriguez that he was in the right to continue with his case. It is a very important decision for the DACA student community that the big employers can really understand our community and in that way to help them and our community to prosper. Procter & Gamble argues that the law allows it to refuse to hire dreamers. Not being able to compete causes you immense frustration and creates a bit of doubt and fear, because what you don't want is to have insecurities on top of what you already experience as a new professional. Companies' concerns about hiring DACA recipients intensified in 2017, when Trump said he would end the program. We hope this case will help companies see that they have to change their policies to help those who deserve the opportunity. Reported by Vilma Tarazona in Miami, Florida, this is Grecia Lastra for U News. According to a recent study by the Washington-based think tank Immigration Policy Institute, fewer Mexicans are arriving in the U.S. and at the same time, there has been an increase in immigrants coming from Asia. Here's Jorge Hernandez with that story. In the United States, immigration is changing. Although Mexicans are still the largest foreign-born population, according to a new study, more people are now arriving from Asia, mainly from India, in China. 
It is not surprising that we have seen findings about the Mexican population decreasing in the last few years as conditions in Mexico have changed. Fewer of them are entering the United States and more of them are actually returning to Mexico. The study points out that in the last decade, the number of Mexican immigrants in the United States has decreased by 7%, although they still represent almost 25% of the 45 million immigrants in the country. In 2019, there were 10,900,000 people born in Mexico living in the United States. Between 2010 and 2019, this population decreased by about 780,000 people. The supply of migrants is shrinking. The economy is improving. In many areas where immigrants used to come, now remittances are creating possibility for the new generation not to have to migrate. The report reveals that in 2018, Mexican nationals represented 51% of the 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States, and those arriving are likely to have a college education. Not only are Mexican immigrants working in restaurants or construction, many of them are already doing other jobs and we have to continue to see what the future of these people can be. According to the World Bank, the contributions these immigrants make to the Mexican economy through remittances represents 3% of Mexico's gross domestic product. Jorge Hernandez, U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.